I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles as we continue our Bible study through the book of Acts and head over to Acts chapter 6. If you haven't been joining us, we're just going paragraph by paragraph through this book, and we're doing that in the mornings. Then in the evenings, what we've been doing is taking some of those supplementary questions that come out. We, in the first couple chapters, ran into the book of Acts some healings. So in Sunday evenings, we talked about what about biblical healings. In the first couple chapters, and what we're getting into now, in the middle of the book, we're going to run into a second time where they are speaking in tongues, and that's a very um, controversial I'll use that word, discussion in churches. Tonight I want to just do, this evening and next week, a study on what does the Bible say about tongues and answer a lot of those questions that come up so you're familiar, so you understand exactly what the Bible teaches in that matter. So join us this evening as we do that. There is children's ministries with the Calvary Clubs. The teens have TNT, and so we'd have those ministries going on while you and I, we take time and just go through a study on the gift of tongues. And what we've been doing is this Sunday mornings is going paragraph by paragraph. And I came to chapter 6. If you're familiar with chapter 6, it is the beginning of an office in the church that we call deacons, the first time that they're introduced. And one of the men that I was reading who had a sermon from this chapter, he reminded me of something that happened in my house years ago based upon the title that he took for this section we're going to study. Several years ago when we were away, my wife and I, I don't know if it was just an evening for a while or what it was, but we got a call from our daughter who was one of those uh, daughters in the home we still at the time, and she was in an absolute panic. She said, you've got to come home. I'm not staying in this house another night. It is something horrible has happened. We thought maybe there was bloodshed. Maybe there was something. She says, no, I saw a mouse run across the kitchen floor. And she said, I'm just absolutely not staying here if you don't do something. And so I said, well, what'd you do? She says, well, I called for my brother. He didn't see it. And so she went on. She says, it's in the house somewhere. It's just, you got to be here. You got to do something. And then while we're talking to her and trying to get her off cloud nine here to come down to earth, she said, I got an idea. And I heard something happening when she put the phone down. And she went, came back to the phone and she says, I got it taken care of. What'd you do? She says, I put a chair in front of the pantry door where the mouse had run into. And that mouse is not getting out. I said, well, how big a mouse is it that it needs to have a chair in front of the door? And she says, well, it's, it's a big mouse. And I said, well, do you realize that at the bottom, and I was dumb. You know, she was starting to calm down. I said, do you realize at the bottom of the pantry door, there's a gap about this much between the door and the floor? And she said, it can get out. And she went ballistic once again. And so it was just a horrible, horrible thing that just trying to calm her down, she wasn't going to stay in the house. The reason I say all that is this preacher that was preaching from this section of scripture, he took as his title, Eek, we've got deacons in the church. Yeah, and it's like, no, that shouldn't be a scary thing. But then I go to some preacher's conferences and I hear what pastors say about their deacons and it's like, wow, you poor guys. You should come to Faith Baptist. We got the world's greatest deacons in our church. It is absolutely amazing how God has blessed over the years with such wonderful, wonderful men serving in that capacity. Well, that's the gist of what's happening here in Acts chapter 6. But let me uh, get away from the title, Eek, We Got Deacons. And I want to deal with more of the reality of the text. It's growing pains. Follow along as we read. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring. Now we've got to set the context for that. 
what has been happening, the early church has been growing. We've talked about the last couple of weeks. They started off with just a small number, but then 3,000 got saved. And then the Lord was adding daily. And then we read specifically that 5,000 men, just the men, were added to the church along with their wives and kids. And then we read some more about the passages say there was multitudes that were added to the church. So the church is growing. It's probably around 20,000 in number in these weeks, months since the beginning of the church. And as they're growing, these people are really, really doing well, but they don't have a place to meet on their own. They don't have a church building. They're using the temple, as we talked last week, Solomon's Porch. And they're meeting there, and they're gathering. And as they're gathering and meeting, they're, they're not... Um, incognito. The, the religious leaders in the temple, they're seeing thousands of people come and gather to do this other worship than, than the sacrificial worship. And so they're getting jealous. They're getting perturbed by that. And we read last week how this group of believers, they stood firm. They were courageous. They get beaten. And yet the, the group of them says, we're going to continue to give out the word of God. We're not going to quit. But then we come to chapter 6, and this group that was courageously standing for Christ, they're ready to self-implode. They're ready to self-destruct. Why is that? Well, the disciples were multiplied, and there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And again, you have to understand the context of what's gone on before. We've read already that the peoples in this church, they were giving gifts to help out one another. Go back to chapter 4 and remember what he had wrote and he had told us. That it says in chapter 4, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses, they sold them. They brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at whose feet? At the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And so this church is extremely charitable, and they're helping out people. And that was part of the Jewish religion that had started to fall by the wayside. You see, in the Jewish religion, they would even have people go out on Fridays and collect offerings from around the different merchants around town, and then put that together with the offerings that would come in at the temple, and then they would distribute to the widows. Well, those widows are no longer getting help from the temple because there's persecution starting. So the church has taken it upon himself. We're going to help those individuals out. The widows, maybe others who are in other need. And so they bring this money, they put it at the apostles' feet, and then distribution is being made. In fact, these people are helping out in a tremendous way. We read about it last week that they were helping out via the apostles, even others in the community, where you read in chapter 5, verse 12, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders uh, that were wrought. And there was more believers added in chapter 5, verse 14. And then we read in verse 16, there came also multitudes out of the cities round about bringing the sick folk. So they're not limiting their assistance to just the believers. They're being extremely charitable and everything's going great and wonderful. The preaching of the word of God, the actually carrying out the word of God. But then we read of something that happens at the end of chapter 5. They're in the daily, daily in the temple and in every house. They're teaching and preaching Jesus. But some people in the group feel neglected. They feel threatened. Not by outsiders, but by the insiders. And we read what happens is the Grecians, they're murmuring against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us unless we understand the terminology used back then. 
The idea of the murmurings is this idea. It's the word that means disputes, complaints, verbal attacks. It's not just muttering under your breath. It is verbally saying something, and it's starting to cause discord within the body. They're starting to get two factions within the church. Now, you understand that at this moment, the church is basically Jewish. It's basically everybody's born again. There may be a few proselytes, but it's the idea that some people in the church, they're taking sides. It's not the widows who are saying things, but they're the subject of this conversation. It is others in the church all of a sudden going back to their old way of division. They're all Jews, but what had happened is by the New Testament era, even in the Jewish system, there was two factions of Jews that would often occur. Sometimes, I shouldn't say just two, there was sometimes it was based upon location. Like the Judean, Jerusalem Jews, they looked down at the Galileans. You are all familiar with that because it comes up in the gospel. They're Galileans. Nothing good can come out of there. There was that type of, of discord. There was that type of looking down at others. The southern Jews thought less of the northern Jews. But there was another division that isn't as uh, expressed in the gospel. There was the Grecian Jews and there were the Hebrew Jews. Most of the Jews that are in Galilee and Jerusalem, Judea, they would be called Hebrew Jews. That would be the disciples, the apostles. They would be part of that group. The Grecian Jews were those Jews who weren't born in this area. They, their parents may have stayed during the time that Israel was taken out of the land and they were taken to Babylon and in other parts of the world. Some Jews migrated back and resettled Jerusalem under, you have the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they resettled it. And then as generations went by, they had children, and so they populated that area. But a large number of the Jews stayed outside of the land of Israel or Palestine, whatever terms you want to use. They stayed out for generations, and they lived in the Mediterranean world. Some went to Antioch, some would go to Cyprus, some would go to Crete, and they raised their families there, they developed synagogues, and they were there, and some of them came back for Pentecost. We read about that in chapter 1. Others started, they, generations later, they moved back. But the people who were local, the Hebrews that generation after generation lived there, they looked at these people as outsiders. Even though they were Jewish, they looked at them and said, you are Greek Jews. Now what they meant by that is you Hellenized, you adopted Greek things. Most of those Jews outside of Jerusalem, outside of Galilee, outside of that region, they spoke Greek as their first language. Whereas the Jews in this region around Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, they spoke Aramaic, which was a version of Hebrew. Those who were in the region around Jerusalem, Judea, and that area, they studied the Old Testament in Hebrew. These others who were from outside the region, they had another Bible that was called the Septuagint, or the LXX, it's referred to, the 70. And that was their Bible. And so these Grecian and Hebrew uh, Jews, they had differences. They had different translations, 
Can you imagine people arguing over translations of the Bible? Anyway, they had this argument going and they had this animosity going, especially the Hebrew Jews. They considered them second class, not as good as they were because they hadn't, their families hadn't stayed here or moved back as quickly as the Hebrew Jews. And this developed, even in the Jewish system, there was this angst, there was this problem that was there brewing all the time within Jerusalem within the temple worship. And so what had happened is it bled into the church. A cultural problem of prejudice bled right over into the born-again people. Can you imagine born-again people still struggling with prejudice? You know, being upset over somebody having a different background or a different class. Well, you know that that happened. You know that James writes and says that that happened in the church. They had the rich people and the poor people. In communion, they had that struggle where some wouldn't share food. They had that even with slaves and masters and some of, the, of different backgrounds. Well, it shows its ugly head of prejudice the first time right here in Acts chapter 6 within the church. And so these people are there and they're having this problem. And again, some of the people, some of the Grecians may have been some of those who came for, Pente- uh, for Pentecost and then stayed. It may be others who, who uh, you know, moved back. I don't know all the details, but we know in early Acts there was a number of people who had come from outside the region and come and gotten born again. And so here they are, they're there and they're upset. And their upsetness is the believers don't think the apostles are distributing the money equitably to the different widows. They seem to be biasly giving more to the Hebrew widows than they are to the Greek widows. And they're complaining against the apostles about it. Is it really happening? I don't know. You weren't there, I wasn't there. The apostles never deny it. They never argue it. So whether it was happening, the fact is it's perceived. It's understood. And it's creating a problem that could easily divide the church into two different bodies that go two different directions. At its very beginning of laying the foundation, this was a serious problem. This was a dangerous problem in the church. And so the apostles, they respond, and their response to this issue is not to ignore it, they address it. And they say in verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reasonable that we should lead the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore you people look out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom that we may appoint over this business. This is what we understand to be the beginning of deacons. The term only shows up in 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1, and that's only years later. But three times in this text where you see ministering or serving, it is the same word that deacons derives from. That they say, we're not to be doing that, we'll let these guys do it. And so they come up with this concept of these deacons, and they make a suggestion. Now from that, let me venture into offending most everybody in this room by what I say this morning. By taking this text and saying some things about ministry in general, about church, that I'm sure some aren't going to like. But based on this text, there are several lessons that stand out to me that we need to grab onto and understand from this passage. Number one lesson that I think is really important, we need to be realistic about church and other believers. We need to get real on how we think and how we view other people. The reason I say that is I learned from this text that really good churches have problems. 
Just because a church has problems doesn't mean that they're heretical. This was a really good church. They were doing the job, and Satan was clever enough to introduce some internal problems. And they have that attack. Good churches, and and this is me, I am glad this is recorded because it gives me a realistic picture of us that even if we are a good church, and I hope we are by the grace of God and in His eyes, we still have problems. We still have difficulties. We will fail to minister completely to everyone the way they want us to all the time. It's going to happen. If the apostles were unable with all of their insight and their guidance by the Holy Spirit, which was much better than what we have today, if they failed to minister to everybody in the body to the point that everybody was happy, I take heart in this idea that I'm going to fail you. It's going to happen. It's not that we want to. It's not that we really sit during the week and say, how can we blow it this week? How can we offend this group of people? We don't seek to. We don't want to, but we will. It will happen. The pastors will fail you. The deacons, in their deaking, they will fail you. The Sunday school teachers, they will fail. We will, we will fail one another at times, not by purpose, but we have sinful character in the side of us. At times, we say things. At times, we do things that are going to hurt. And we're not trying to excuse it, but we struggle with sin the same you do. There's, this is not a perfect church. By the way, if you find that sinless and perfect church, don't join it. Okay? Because you or I would take that church down. We have sinful character. We have human differences. We see things different. Some of you even think it's hot in here right now. Some of you think it's very cold in here right now. We have differences. Some of you think, and it's very, very, very few, I'm sure, think that, that I preach long. Some of you, the vast majority, I'm sure, think that I should preach twice as long. There wasn't a single amen on that. See, we have differences. We have human limitations. It is a reality that we don't always know what's going on. Yeah, um, I don't have Facebook. I know that means that I'm just absolutely back in the Stone Age. But I don't have Facebook. And so I don't know at times when people end up in the hospital. It's not that we purposely don't want to know. But you know what? Sometimes people, they don't tell us. And they get upset with us that we haven't come to visit. But the answer is, I didn't know. I didn't know that this was an issue. I didn't know somebody was sick. And it happens that sometimes there's expectations that exceed. Now, it would never happen in your house. But it happens in this family that some people have much higher expectations of other individuals. They expect other individuals to come and to talk with them and to seek them out and to ask them how they are doing. But they themselves don't expect it of of themselves. They'll sit in their pew. Now, none of, none of you probably do this, but some people come and they just sit by themselves and they don't say anything. They don't reach out to anybody. They don't say hello to anybody. And then they say, well, people didn't come flocking to me. So this is an unfriendly group. Yeah, we, we will fail. We will fail in those, those areas. That's because we are not perfect. Not yet. We have the hope in Jesus Christ that one day we will be perfect. Not because of ourselves, but because Jesus Christ will one day take us to heaven and he will perfect us. 
Because of his grace, his mercy, because of what he did on the cross, we get to heaven. Not because of our own goodness. We're sinners. We're failures. We're going to blow it. But God forgives us. And so when the reality is we need, we, we, all of us, we need to pause at times and to get a reality check about the church and the people. Because sometimes churches, really good churches, they have growing pains. You know, when, when I was, my wife and I were raising the kids, I would hear some of you say, our kid had growing pains. And I always thought, that's a weird thing. It's just an imaginary thing or it's a statement. I didn't realize they're real until one of our kids started having, you know, these pains. And I remember taking my wife to the doctor and she came out and she says, the doctor said he has growing pains. And it's like, yeah, what's that? And she says, it's pains. They're really, and it's like, yeah. And I, that's what I thought. I thought they were just imaginary. They were just wife's fables. Growing pains are real. That happens here. I mean, seriously. I, and I joke about it, but I'm not joking. When we grow and people come in visiting and they take somebody's pew, some people have been highly offended by that. I'm serious. We had a family leave because people sat in their pew. You know, and they're upset over that. Do those things happen? The answer is yes. Yes, and so the problems, when these problems arise, like, hey, we blow, we're blowing it. We're not ministering to the Grecian widows the way we should. We're offending some people. We're stumbling some people. These new problems became new possibilities. Without that problem, they wouldn't have developed the deacons. And the deacons have become such an integral part of the church that later on he says these are one of the two offices or officers for the church. They were so incredibly important, but it started because of a problem. Isn't that the way life is oftentimes? Problems introduce new possibilities. If you, if you, if you sit back and say, well, I don't know about that, watch Shark Tank for just a couple episodes. People develop solutions based on problems. And so you and I need to understand that we need a realistic picture here. We need to say unity in the body where we work together to promote the gospel is far more important than our individual ways and wants. That is critical to the operation of the church. So what do we do with this? Can I be extremely blunt and practical? We ought not to run every time we find a problem in a church. I think that's a problem with modern American churches in the sense that we have too many options. If we don't like something here, we just run to another one without resolving some issues at times. And so if we don't like something, it's easy to just run and find another one just without any consideration of doctrine or teaching. We just find someplace else where I'll be happier. We're not perfect. No church is perfect. If you're running because of problems and you're looking for a place without problems, you will be forever running. What does it do to your kids for stability? Think about this. We ought not to allow dissension and this division to spread in a church. The apostles were wise enough they had to deal with it. None of us should ever foster it. Think about this. We ought to give other people some breathing room. We ought to lower our expectations that are reasonable at times. 
I, I, I think it's very reasonable that if I go into a store, praise God that I don't, but if I go into a store and I see one of you, and I stand there and wave like this, and you don't wave back, I think it's reasonable for me to say, you may not have seen me. Instead of assuming, <laughs> so Sunday morning, I'm going to let you have it. <laughs> let people have breathing room. I think this is a reality. If we fail one another, we should forgive and not hold it against them. I think this is real. We need to recognize our own flaws instead of other people's flaws. And in fact, we ought to, as a church, say, instead of picking on other groups and other churches, we ought to address our issues and try to make it where we better, better minister. I think this is real true. I'm going to get onto it again, so I'll just jump on We ought to listen and consider what people are saying about their needs and not react defensively. I think this is true. We all, every one of us in this body, ought to interact and minister better to one another. When will we achieve the perfect balance of always ministering and meeting needs? When we see Jesus Christ and he puts us straight. But that doesn't mean we ought not to try. I think this is a reality. We ought not to get hung up on traditionalism. We shouldn't look at change as being bad. Change, change for the sake of change is silly. But change to improve ministries, let's do it. By the way, this, these principles apply to your marriage. They apply to your family as well. So number one, we said this. What you need to do is you need to be realistic about church. I think this is also true. Number two from this text, be ready to change and contribute better. Every one of us in this room. Now, I look at this text, and there's three groups of people that were clearly willing to change and contribute better. The first group was the apostles. Okay, now I'm going to focus on them because I have a parallel responsibility to what they do. So their illustration in this story is good for me. Okay, and I look and go, okay, even though they were leaders and they were impulsive people, remember we've got Peter, James, and John as part of the apostles. Did Peter ever shoot off his mouth? Did James and John ever react badly when somebody didn't treat them right? Let's call down fire because they weren't hospitable. We'll just burn them. We'll barbecue the whole town. So these apostles still have some of these struggles. And yet at the same time, they are going to exercise some wisdom and discernment to address issues without flying off the handle. They're going to be wise. They're going to listen to some who've come to them with a serious situation that was dividing the body. And they listened without getting upset, without getting defensive. I don't read in the text that John and his brothers said, burn them all. They don't do it. They are listening to the people. They are willing to change the way they were doing things. Let's take it a step further. They're willing to let others minister in their stead. We'll let these other guys do the distribution. Though we've been doing it for these last weeks, we'll let somebody else take it. Do you realize what that meant for them? 
that meant that they were willing to let their hands off certain things. As one author put it, greatness has not only revealed what we accomplish, but at times what we relinquish. I'll give you a famous American who I know that the schools don't teach this anymore, but those of you who had proper history, you understand he was a great American. He had opportunity to grab onto a monarchy in the beginning of our nation when it was being formed. He was encouraged to do it, and what did he say? No, this isn't why we fought this war. This isn't why we'd established this country so that I could promote myself. Greatness is giving up things at times. The apostles were willing to delegate, not dominate. In fact, they told the body, you decide. You choose from amongst you. And then when they chose, they said, okay, these guys are going to do the distribution. And they actually allowed them to do the distribution. But think this through. How did they learn about delegation? Isn't there a story in the Old Testament that it was emphasized that leaders need to be delegators? Do you remember the occasion? It's from Exodus chapter 18. Moses is being visited by whom? His father-in-law Jethro. And Moses is sitting out there with the people judging from morning till evening. And his father-in-law says to him, this thing that you are doing is not good. You will wear away yourself and you'll wear away the people. And his father-in-law asks him, or advises him, why don't you pick some other people to take care of some of the secondary cases, some of the, the, the lesser cases, and you focus on that. And Moses wisely listened to his father-in-law. That ought to be a crown in itself. And so he listens and lets those men not only delegates it, but he lets them do the job. And so they prosper and they do much better. Then the guys here in the book of Acts, they not only say, let's do this, you pick them, but it says that they support them. And how did they do that? How did they do it? Look at what the passage goes on. And it says that the, the saying, verse 5, pleased the multitude. Verse 6, they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. This isn't something mystical and magical that gives power. This was an Old Testament practice custom that simply said, I'm showing my support. I'm praying for you. It was a symbolism that just said, hey, listen, we're behind these guys. Listen to them. Let them do the job. But the apostles were putting themselves in front of the fire that people could give. Can you imagine by the apostles doing this? Can you imagine what people would say? You're too good to serve my widow? You don't visit me anymore? What, what, what do you mean? You, you aren't going to come and take care of the people I want you to? Would that ever happen in a body that people would become critical that way? The, there's another group here. There's another group. It's the church body. It's the body themselves where we read the saying, please the whole multitude. I, I think this is, from your perspective, I think this is one of the most marvelous statements in Scripture. The church was willing to change, to adjust the way we've been doing things. In this case, they were willing to accept new people to do the job. They were willing to let the apostles focus on something different instead of upon them and upon their widow. Now, again, let me put it in context. You say, well, they should do that. But what if it were your widow? What if it were your mom? 
and you were living back then, would you have felt slighted that the apostles gave the job to ministering to her to somebody else? The church didn't do that. The church was open to that. Does that happen today in churches that people get miffed if they don't get a certain person to come at their beck and call? I remember years ago when we started this church. When we were coming up, my brother and I were coming up on weekends, and one of the people who was there at the church in those first few months kept on saying, I don't know why they keep sending you boys. We're waiting for the big guy to come. I was like, who's the big guy? Who's this big And what they were talking about is they wanted Dr. Jordan, who was the founder of the church in Lansdale, who had started a seminary we were going to, uh, to come and preach to them. And none of us counted in his mind. It was, we need the big guy. Well, the big guy had a church of 1,700 people he was ministering to. No offense, don't take this wrong, but, and it's just not numbers. This is a group of 17 people. But they wanted him to drop everything to come here. Which, by the way, he did come on several occasions and preach. But in those first formation months and founding, getting it going, <laughs> we were just, I don't know what term you I don't want to hear your terms. Okay, we were, we were leftovers. We had, in, in recent years, had somebody coming. I mean, I got chewed out royally absolutely yelled at, chewed at, just it was underneath the portico. And it was somebody who had visited our services for a bit, and I sent some of the assistants, asked them to go and see the person. And they were highly offended that I wouldn't take the time to come and visit, but I sent the peons, was the term, the peons of the church to come and visit. Because they didn't count. I had to make the visit to make a count. And it was like, what? number one, I don't think the assistants are that. I think they're qualified. They're really good. They can, they can make visits. And the reality is, I can't visit everybody. It's just an impossibility. There's only so much time in the day. There's only one of me. That's why we have assistants. That's why we have deacons. That's why we have you to do some of this other ministry. And the church was willing to accept that. There's another group that stands out. It's the deacons, the first guys that are here that were willing to take up the task. He says, look out among you seven men of honest report. And he gives their qualifications. He says, honest, full of the Holy Ghost, wisdom that we may appoint over this business. And so he gives all those things and he tells them to figure it out. He says, look for their character. We'll come back in a moment. But what's interesting is every name of the people in verse 5, every one of them has a Grecian name. Now, that doesn't mean they were, they were Grecian Jews. It just says, we don't know. But they had Grecian names. And one of them in particular, the last one in verse 5, it's clear that he was not a Hebrew Jew. So the people that they picked were people who had a vested interest in this, the way it seems. And so they wisely chose these people. And these guys were willing to change their own personal schedules to minister in this capacity. I take my hat off to them. 
that, that they found seven men within a church of 20,000 that were willing to serve other people in this capacity. That's, that's tremendous. That's remarkable. To do something small that can make a difference. Pastor Stephen Davy you know, was sharing a story in this, his, his commentary on this of what happened in their church in Carolina. There was a young man by the name of, of Mark who was walking down the street. And as he was walking down in his, I think it was the sophomore year of high school, a kid in front of him that he had seen at school, he knew his name was Bill, but he didn't know him at all, never met him. He sees him and he's carrying books and he's carrying other stuff, sports stuff, all kinds of stuff, and he drops it. And he looks really discouraged and really frustrated. So Mark walks up and asks if he can help carry it. And the other guy says, I got it, I got it. He says, no, let me carry it. I think we're going the same direction. He thought he lived close to his place. So he helps him. And as they're walking along, Mark is talking to Bill. And they find out they have a few things in common. Because he's carrying a baseball glove and Mark likes baseball. He sees that he has some baseball card. He says, oh, I like that, that guy too. And they start talking. When they get to Bill's house... Bill asks Mark to come into the house. And Mark comes in and they have a Coke together. They talk. And after that, they weren't bosom buddies, but they got together once in a while. Sometimes they would eat lunch together. Sometimes they would get together at different occasions. And they were friends. Again, not, not intimately close best friends, but they were friends. And they go through school the next couple of years, and it's the senior year. And Bill you know, is talking to Mark, and they each have their yearbook, and they're asking each other to sign it. And Bill makes a comment to Mark. He says, hey, do you remember that day we first met? And Mark says, yeah, I remember. You were walking down the street. And Bill said, do you know why I had all that stuff in my, in my hands? Mark said, no, you never told me. And Bill said, with the problems that I was having at home, problems I was having at school, I determined I would end my life that day. I had saved up enough sleeping pills from my mom that I had taken without her knowing, and that evening I was going to take my life, and I was clearing my locker so nobody else would have to clean my locker. And Mark's eyes got real big, and Bill looked at me and said, your kindness that day changed my mind. Because you stopped and helped me, you spent time with me, I didn't think I was as worthless as I thought I was. And over the time, you showed me some kindnesses. And he looked at me and said, Mark, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but you saved my life. It was something little in Mark's life, but it made a difference. Do you realize the deacons, these seven guys, it wasn't major what they were doing. It was giving out, and I don't mean to diminish this, it was giving out food. It was helping people out. But it saved the church, the unity of the church. Little services that you may make can have tremendous impact. Be realistic about the church. Be real, ready to make some changes in your own life to contribute to the body. Let me add this last thought. Be resistant to challenges or compromises to your priorities. Be resistant to challenges or compromises to your priorities. Or should we say, God's priorities for you? What I mean by that is this. In this text, God reveals what is priority in several different areas. God reveals to us, when it comes to picking leaders in a church, there are certain priorities. 
The priority for picking leaders isn't, well, let me put this, what's, what's the important, that importance that some churches put on picking leaders? Why do they pick certain leaders at times in some churches? Successful in business, they have money, good looks, talented. They, they may have some social standing. They may have degrees in school. What does God say for leadership in a church? What does he say in this text? He says, choose out among you seven men of what? Honest report. What else? Full of the Holy Ghost. What else? Wisdom. You see, the criteria that he sets is, one, they had to be a part of the body from among you. Okay? The solution was, in, was inside the church. It wasn't getting somebody outside. The solution was inside the body. But he makes it clear. He says, this is spiritual character. People who display it. In fact, the body was able to see it. That's his point here. The word select means you research, you examine, you look for something that is visible. They could tell that this person was following the Lord. They could tell this person was making wise decisions. They could tell that this person was honest. And he says, that's what you focus on. When you pick leaders in a church... You don't pick somebody just because they've been there a long time or they're a certain age or they have whatever they're driving. You pick them based upon spiritual character. And that priority is essential for us as a church to continue to follow. It is critical that when we choose leaders, you're going to end up choosing a pastor if the Lord tarries. You're going to have to get a new one. Okay? There's going to come a time where we're going to, this year, we're going to elect deacons again. The criteria has to be spiritual character more than anything else. It can't be, do they preach short? That's a good thing. It ain't happening in my lifetime. I know that. But that's not your criteria. It's got to be spiritual character. That's God's priority. Something else that strikes me, and this is for me, but I want to share it with you because it really engages you. There is a priority given in this passage about pastoral labors. By illustration, by example, the apostles are indicating to me and to you what I'm supposed to be focusing on as far as the spiritual leader of the church. In this text, he makes it very clear when the apostles make this comment where they say, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They are making a tremendous statement. Now remember, this caring for the widows was very important. The apostles had been doing that. But as growing pains made it impossible for them to keep up with it, they said, we, it still needs to be done. We ought not to stop caring for the widows. But there are others who can focus on caring for the widows, even though people are going to criticize us for it. Even though people are going to say, well, you didn't come and visit me, or you didn't do this, and you didn't do that. He is saying to them, we need, we have this responsibility. We're going to focus on what Jesus trained us to do. Jesus challenged us, and he trained us that the priority for us as that spiritual leader in that church, that we're supposed to be focusing on praying and preaching. 
doesn't mean we shouldn't visit widows. I'm not saying that at all. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have time visiting with people or somebody who visits. It doesn't mean that. I'm not saying that. So don't swing the pendulum to put words in my mouth. What I'm saying is the bulk of my responsibility according to Scripture is to be praying and preaching. To make sure that when you're coming, you're getting a diet from the Word of God that can help you. That's the criteria of this text. Which, by the way, challenges me. You ought not to demand anything different from your pastors. You shouldn't demand from us that we lessen time in study and just go visit, 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 and visit, 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 and just do fellowship after fellowship after fellowship after fellowship. And it doesn't mean that we, that we shouldn't care. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't when the opportunity arises. Do you understand I'm trying to get a balance here? There's an expectation of people that they think getting a message put together, something teaching, happens in five minutes. It doesn't. I'm slow. I'm old. I know that. I don't have all of the technique. It takes me typically 12 plus hours for a message. And I'm doing typically right now three to four a week including Sunday school. So that means I don't have as much time to do. So we have staff who some think are peons, but they're to help. So you gotta, there's got to be a choice here. Me, This is me. I don't want to change God's standard just to please people. I want us to have this standard that what, this is what we focus on here. Giving good, solid Bible teaching, preaching. As well, we shouldn't expect anything less from our pastors. We should expect them that they will be engaged in prayer. That they will study God's word. We should demand that. You should be, when you interview somebody, to take my place when that day happens. And please don't say I'm, I'm setting you up for that. That is not in my mind. I'm just trying to teach, when that day happens, your first questions ought to be, what do you do with prayer and what do you do with the Bible? That should be the first criteria. That's God's standard. Does that make sense? Yeah? So at, when we do this, we have to understand this as well. Here's where it brings home to you, even a little bit more. I think they gave us an example of personal living. That on a personal level, what should we be focusing on? Yeah, widows we need to be focusing on. Yeah, we need to be focusing on the unity. Yeah, we need to be doing that. But the foundation to all of our service, to all that we do for Christ has to be, are you in the Word of God and in prayer? Are you relying upon the Lord or are you doing it on your own? It's called daily devotions. It's called making sure that you have them, that you do them, that you realize that all these other things, they're important and they're there, but if I'm not in the Word of God for my own spiritual growth, if I'm not praying for my own benefit and for the benefit of others, I can easily be serving the Lord in my own strength. And yet here in in our world, in our society, it is so easy for us to get so caught up with other stuff that all of a sudden it takes a priority in our lives. 
I haven't used this illustration for years. But this is your life. This is you. Your life is busy, 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 busy. Right? I, I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. But your life is busy. If you're raising kids, if you're working a job, if you have a house, if you're getting married, if you're doing things, your minutes, all these little pieces of rice, they're minutes in your life. And they're, they're important stuff. You're doing them. You're busy. You're, you're, you're in activities. That activity may be shopping, may be mopping, it may be raking, it may be hunting, it may be cleaning the car, getting gasoline, it may be checking on your parents, it may be going on over and fixing their, something at their house, it may be taking the kids to school, it may be going to a school program, it may be helping those kids just get to bed. It, it, you know, whatever it is, your life is busy. Your life is just filled with stuff. And you're all busy. And then all of a sudden you say, hey, we heard of that church that we're supposed to have devotions. It's supposed to be every day of the week. And we'll, we'll try to stick those devotions in. We'll put one in that we get during the week. And then we'll put another time of devotions in. And then we'll try to squeeze in another time. But our life gets so busy that all of a sudden we don't have time for devotions anymore. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, there's just so much going on, you know. And he doesn't realize that when he preaches on Sunday, he has no clue what life is really like. That it's just too busy to read my Bible. I'm too busy to be doing those things. You got it backwards. That's where most of us have lived. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his, and then what happens? All these things shall be added unto you. Same things. But you put a priority where you say, I'm going to study the word of God. Janitor, I'm so sorry. But all of a sudden, you reverse things, and you make Bible reading a priority, and prayer a priority. It fits. It's a matter of prioritizing. And some of you aren't doing this. What is your priority? Is Christ the priority? Well, see, that's what he's telling us. He's telling us that we're supposed to be putting him first, taking those 10, 15, 20 minutes of time with the Lord. And then the Lord blesses. As a result, what happens? These people keep priorities. And we read verse 7. And the word of God, of the God increased. The number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company, even reaching into the priesthood. Reaching individuals that they never thought that they would reach. Because they've kept these priorities. They were focused the way they should. My question is, are you... Are you? Are you an individual that says God can bless because I'm putting God first in my life? As we sing to the Lord this morning, make sure that it's real in your life. Make sure that you really have the priority.